Hey, everybody. I am here with the legendary Chili Willy, uh, whose name is Joe. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing fine, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I've been a fan of your work forever, uh, and there's been so much lore about the mythical Chili Willy. Um, I just I had no idea what to expect there. You know, there's so many stories about who you are, how you got so much knowledge about the Genesis. So, uh, you know, basically, I just here to chat and, and want to just get your origin story and, and help promote all of the awesome, awesome work you've done over the years. So um, what I guess what is to go right back to the beginning? How did you get started developing stuff for the Genesis and 32X and Sega CD and, and everything else? Well, I started out originally uh, developing stuff for the Atari 8-bit computer line. Okay. That's where I got my first start originally. Um, my first commercial sale was indeed a, uh algorithm that actually generated 80-column text on your Atari home computer from the built-in font. So it was legible. It wasn't great because, you know, the Atari only had a maximum of 320 pixels. Mm -hmm. So you had four pixels <clears throat> per character. But it did it automatically on the fly using code that was small enough to fit into page six, which is where you wanted to try and keep your assembly language routines when you were trying to mix them in with basic. Mm -hmm. And I made a uh, 80 column terminal emulator that I actually used as part of my, uh, communicating with the University of Houston uh, server to do programming from home, which is why I originally wrote it. So that was the first thing I sold. And then from there, I upgraded to an Amiga 500. So just to, just to put a pause on that. So you said that's the first thing you sold. So basically, you were a college student working, uh, learning to become a programmer. You made your first program, uh, sellable program like that. And that was your first foray into like, professional programming yep that's what this is up back in 84 85 oh wow okay so yeah so but, then uh you were already doing this before the genesis was even released then yes mm -hmm. all right a windows update killed this thing sorry uh so you had just finished saying that you got i believe you said an amiga because it was inexpensive for a college kid was it an amiga uh, or yes, am I just, amiga 500 okay. Yes. Okay. And that's just about where Windows killed your machine. Thank you, Ghost of Bill Gates. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> so I that's just about where you were at. And um, also, I apologize about the delay. We're doing this. I mean, I think by now everybody's probably used to it. But for the one person that has never heard a podcast recorded remotely before, we're going to be stepping on each other. There's going to be long pauses. It's just there's nothing you could do about it. There's variable delays with these. But Passing the ball in your court, you got your Amiga. Hopefully Windows won't kill you again. And uh, I think you were just talking about um, programming and the Genesis hadn't come out yet, but you had got your computer and then we dropped out. Okay. Well, the Amiga 500, of course, came with the 68,000. So I got into programming uh, 68,000 in assembly language. And later on, I got a job actually doing commercial products for the Amiga. Uh, with Utilities Unlimited Incorporated out of Arizona. Oh. And we had been working on a, the M-Plant project at that point. So uh, our first product was a Mac emulator. So about the time while we're right in the middle of working on that, the uh, uh, 
uh, Sega CD Model 2 comes out. And I don't have a Genesis at the time, but I had always seen lots of uh, good reviews of the games and everything, Sonic in particular. I had a chance to play that at a friend's house. So naturally, um, I go out and I pick up both a Genesis Model 2 and a Sega CD Model 2 at the same time. So that was where I got my main uh, Sega, which I still have set up right here in the room with me at the same time. And then eventually the 32X came out and I picked up one of the uh, launch uh, releases of the 32X. And Do you remember which game? I got five of the six that came out with the coupons. See, when you bought the launch uh, 32X to help defray the cost, it was $160.00. But to make it look like less, they gave you six coupons for $10 each off the launch titles that came out. So I got five of the six launch titles. The only one I'm missing is Cosmic Carnage. And hmm. I've still got that $10 coupon for it somewhere in a box <laughs> in case someone uh, was interested in that at some point in time. I've still got that. But um, I was always disappointed that um, nothing ever came from the 32X beyond, you know, the 36 games that got released. So I started looking into, uh, at that time, uh, what was available for programming on uh, old retro uh, consoles, and that included the Sega Genesis. And that's where my... Uh, uh, experience working on the 68,000 in the Amiga helped out because I already knew the main processor that was on the uh, Sega Genesis. And this, so, and how did you start looking into any of that? Because, you know, we're talking about a much different time. Like right now, if somebody wants to start looking into how the Genesis works, there's a vast amount of websites and scanned documentation and YouTube videos and that <laughs> none of that existed back then. Uh, yeah, a lot of that you had to do a lot of reverse engineering, and that was kind of my fort at the that particular time. Notice I didn't say forte. Forte is Italian, and it means louder. Fort is how you pronounce the word from French, meaning the strong part of the blade, something you're good at. I did not know that. <laughs> That's <Thank you. laughs> a, a, one of my little pet peeves is people who say forte when they mean fort. Um, okay. <laughs> just little things I like to pick up like that. But um, okay, so reverse engineering. There were um, a lot of different uh, games, for example, that um, uh, you could do better perhaps by making changes to them. For example, um, on the Atari 8 bit computer line that I've been talking about. I used to hack the games and make them better. Pitfall 2 was a cartridge, and it had a lot of copy protection in it that kept you from turning it into something that you could load from a disk drive. Well, the problem mm -hmm. with the Pitfall 2, of course, is it's super hard, and there's no, at that time, there's no saving and reloading. You know, like a lot of games, like, you know, Sonic has the ability to save uh, your progress. Well, Back in the Atari, you know, with the cartridges, they didn't have safe RAM or anything like that. So what I did is I dumped the cartridge using some hardware I rigged up to one of my uh, Ataris, 
and then I um, cracked all their um, protection, made it so I could run it from a game, and then I added code into it that allowed me to save and restore my progress in the game at the touch of a button. So that made it much easier to complete this game because, you know, you could pause and go eat dinner and come back and reload. I don't that know if you know. absolutely awesome. I don't know if you know the last bit of the game that you're trying to get this uh, um, golden lasso and you've got to skip over top of all these pits. So usually it's like jump, die, jump, die, jump, make it. Then you have to jump again immediately, and you die again. So it's, it's a lot of jump, 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 die, jump, die, jump, 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 die. So um, what we would do is, uh, me and my brother, we were trying to map the whole thing. So we would do jump, die, jump, make it, hit the button, and immediately save it. So that when you die, you could reload from the last place you made it to. And that was how That's we finally awesome. made it cross. <laughs> that is funny. But I mean, you're talking about a time long before save states. So like, while this is something that most of uh, you know, most of us retro nerds have probably done today using software emulation, you were writing the code to do that on, and you're using that on original hardware as well, right? Yes. This was uh, cool. basically um, just decompiling the game to its original, well, not original source code because we don't have that, but figuring out where what everything did and then inserting your own code into it in such a way that it doesn't break the game, but extends the playability. So we had uh, load and save routines uh, built into Pitfall 2. That's uh, cool. Did you ever release that to the public just as like a fun ROM to play? Oh, yeah. If you go looking around and you ever see a version of Pitfall 2 that's 24 kilobytes instead of 16 kilobytes, that's my version. And you hit option at any time to go into the save screen. That's cool. It allows you to format a floppy connected to drive one and then load or reload save states to that floppy. And you were able to do this by rigging something up to the original Amiga cartridge and then using that same Amiga computer to dump the ROM? Or did you use a separate computer? Atari. This was Atari. Atari. Sorry, Atari. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, yeah. sorry. <laughs> I'm still, uh, yeah. Um, but you, that's, you basically ripped it on its own hardware. Well, the, the Pitfall cartridge was set up as a diagnostic cartridge. There was a special setting on the Atari where uh, the ROM, when it booted up, would do nothing. It would check the cartridge and see if it's diagnostic. If so, it would immediately jump into the cartridge without doing anything else, period. So that was one of the ways they used to disallow people from running DOS and just using DOS to save the game out. So what we would do, uh, people who were dumping cartridges of this sort, what I did is I hooked a switch between the line that told the computer that a cartridge is inserted and um, the trace on the, the, uh, the motherboard where it actually went into the IO chip itself so that I could disable the setting saying there's a cartridge installed. So I could, I would flip the switch saying there's no cartridge. I'd plug the cartridge in, boot the system up. So it's under DOS and then flip the switch back the other way, which brings the cartridge back in, but I'm already running DOS. So now I can just use DOS to dump the cartridge. 
that was very cool. That is a neat idea. Well done. At that point, then, of course, you have to disassemble the game and figure out what it's doing. But that led into eventually when I outgrew the Atari, I moved into the Amiga. I started doing similar things. And that was how I wound up getting my job out at Utilities Unlimited is I was at the time disassembling the operating system for the Mac 2 because I was interested in what it was doing. Um, And I had disassembled the disk driver and Utilities Unlimited was trying to make a disk copier that copied Mac disks on the Amiga. And um, I noticed that they were not doing it correctly. So I sent them some code saying, this is how the Mac disks are handled. And I got a thing back, how in the heck do you know all this stuff? And I go, oh, well, I've been disassembling the Mac ROMs. <laughs> That's funny. Did they offer to hire you? <laughs> yeah, they did, actually. So That's that was awesome. the first thing I did with them as I helped them fix their uh, copier for Mac disks. That's very cool. That's a great story. But anyway, like I was saying, uh, while I was working there, I got the money up to go ahead and purchase a Genesis and the CD-ROM. And I started applying my know-how from built up from working on the Amiga to then working through issues with things on the... Uh, uh, Sega Genesis, for example, uh, on uh, Sega 16 uh, website, uh, there have been a lot of people that have reported not being able to run games off of flashcards, for example. So hmm. I've got quite a few fixes where I go through and find what the problem is with that and tell them the little patches they need to make to get those working. That's pretty cool. Um, so when when did you first start hacking, if you will, the Genesis and Sega CD? Um, that was basically in the late 90s. And then into the early 200s, there was kind of a, a uh, demo scene and a little bit of homebrew coming out. So I kind of worked into that, started looking at what tools people had available. Um, so I started working on some demos of my own little little bits of things that worked on audio, for example. And Uh, how, since there wasn't like a leaked SDK at this point, how were you able to write that? Um, Is it, you know, stemming from your experience in 68K, obviously, but I mean, how would one even begin that back in the late 90s? um, Basically, you just start with, uh, for example, with the Sega CD, I started with a dump of the Sega CD BIOS. I just insert, loaded into, um, I like to use on the Amiga something called Resource, and it's mainly designed around disassembling 68,000-based software, which was perfect for the Sega Genesis. So I actually transfer this to my Amiga. At the time, it wasn't a real Amiga, but these days I use an Amiga emulator. Hmm. Um, FSEMU. I think that's the one I currently use the the most. But um, then I'd run resource and I'd just go through and I'd, uh, you know, for example, that the very start of a ROM in a Genesis is got to have the exception vector table. And from there you get the restart vector and where the interrupt handlers are and everything. And you just start in the code and you know that this is where it resets. So you start looking at what it's doing. 
And you'll find places where it's writing to RAM and places where it's writing to hardware, and you try and figure out what each one does. <laughs> That's half the fun, of course, is uh, uh, you're looking at something, and you look at the code, and you, you start to recognize things that's drawing something. Obviously, that's a, some drawing code. So this is obviously writing to the screen in some manner. So at that point, um, you know that this is some screen code. And the code that preceded it, where they set some registers, was obviously trying to set the hardware to make the screen in a particular mode or visible. So then you can go back and just poke a few things into the code and try it out and see what happens. A lot, a lo it's a lot of hit and miss. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's got to be like reverse engineering, something like that. It's got to be half tedious and half like, like solving a puzzle. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, that sounds cool. I was never too much into solving Rubik's cube, but I definitely loved working on what other hardware did and what you needed to do to um, utilize it yourself. That is pretty cool. So do you remember the, the first thing that you actually wrote for Sega CD or, or Genesis or anything like that? You mentioned music related. Mm. Trying to remember. Um... It's got to be hard. <laughs> you put out so much I... work over the years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That was back before even the I was working on the PSP, which is where I got my 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 real start on getting into the homebrew scene. Um, basically, it was a couple of demos on compressed audio, if I remember correctly, certain kinds of compression, because I'd seen some uh, unlicensed third-party game from. Uh, overseas that had this god-awful audio. It was obviously digitized, and it was truly horrendous. So I was like, hmm, how about uh, doing some demos showing how c compressed audio should be done that doesn't sound nearly as bad. That's funny. But, um, yeah, actually, um, it was um, the PSP where I got my real start getting into the homebrew scene because I moved from just doing minor little changes, helping people um, hack things into actually doing full homebrew projects, which of course started with the PSP with me just helping people hack little things. For example, um, I don't know if you know about the PSP scene, but I owned um, one and was uh, active on the user side. I didn't do any dev work on uh, for a PSP. Mm. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I was in there right when it was released and right when the first hacks came out. Yeah, they had some special um, keys inside the uh, PSP that were used for uh, security and hardware settings and such. And mm -hmm. people were having trouble messing up their keys, which would break your PSP. So I wrote a few utilities to help people back up their keys, uh, restore their keys, uh, ways of messing with the keys to do experimenting. And at the time, of course, um, uh, Sony wasn't real too happy, thrilled with people messing around with the PSP too much, which is where I actually then adopted the, uh, uh, the name Chili Willy, is at the time I was 
a little worried that Sony might come after some of us. So at the time, my PSP persona was Chilly Willy, and nobody knew it was me until much later after I moved on to other things. But um, I, for example, did a port of uh, Doom to the PSP, and made a similar port of the same code over to the Dreamcast, so I could run... Okay, so back again after another uh, equipment failure here. Uh, so you had just talked about uh, how you created the name Chili Willy just to, you know, just in case Sony was going to come after you for your PSP work, and then we kind of lost you. That was when I started working on actual PSP homebrew. So I worked on a port of Doom to the PSP. And I made sure that that version of Doom worked with a port I made to the Dreamcast as well, which was also compatible with a version on Linux, LS Doom. And you could actually play all three against each other at the same time. Be playing your PSP on Wi-Fi against a Dreamcast using the Ethernet versus a PC running on the Ethernet on Linux. That's right. That's right where uh, that's right where I was kind of I think I interrupted you because I was just a little blown away. I didn't realize you could play Doom on three completely different platforms like that, especially at the time, of course, and have it net network together. And is that because you did all three ports? So you made sure from the beginning that they were all going to be compatible with each other? Or was that yes, a cool exactly. bonus that you figured? OK, <laughs> yeah, that was that was me making sure that what I did is I started with the LS Doom on the PC and I worked that back into the uh, the PSP version and then the Dreamcast version uh, mm. so that they all remained compatible to each other so that uh, you could play against each other. And I commonly do that for testing is, is uh, link up my PC running Linux against the PSP against the Dreamcast. Do that is awesome. <laughs> that is very cool. So... Um, so that was your first homebrew release on the PSP. Um, and then uh, when did that kind of trans or when did you kind of shift over from PSP to start doing the stuff on other platforms and Genesis and stuff like that? Well, I had a tendency to basically move from one platform to the next to make sure I didn't get burnt out on any one thing. So I had been running into some limitations on what was available, what was known about the uh, Segas at the time. I switched over to the PSP because I'd gotten a PSP and was interested in running the custom firmware. And um, then from there, I moved over to a Dreamcast. And then from the Dreamcast, I moved on to a uh, uh, Nintendo 64 and then from that point, then I moved back to the 32X, and that's when I did my first tool chain for the 32X. As actually, there was now uh, someone else had picked up uh, documenting the 32X hardware at the time, and there was a lot more known about it. So I started doing some demos for the 32X, uh, culminating in my. Uh, release of uh, Wolf 32X, hmm. which was Very Wolfenstein cool. 3D for the uh, 32X. I've yeah, I learned that. a lot since then. You've also updated that quite a bit, right? 
Um, a number of times, yes. The latest uh, update I did added in support for the using the CD-ROM for playing the music, so mm-hmm. that um, you could have nice music playing with the game at the the same time. I and, remember downloading that almost immediately after you released it, and then check that out. That was really cool. Yeah. So we did actually manage to work that in. That was one of the first things I did when we were working on uh, Doom 32X Resurrection here recently. But at the time, um, I still was doing audio the way that uh, games were doing audio. And Mm. that was basically put a tiny fragment of sound mixing code into the cache memory for the uh, secondary SH2 inside the 32X and it would simply mix and output each particular sample at the proper rate to the audio registers in the uh, 32X, the pulses with modulation. So it ran the audio at the rate of whatever the, the audio was running at, the sample rate, 22 kilohertz, for example. So hmm. it would do that many interrupts per second mixing the audio, which is why you had to have this little tiny fragment of code in the cache memory. So from there, I was like, there's got to be a better way of doing this audio. And I knew there were DMA registers in the uh, the SH-2. And from there, then I experimented on making the DMA output the uh, uh, audio to the pulse with modulation registers. And I first started by just simply um, uh, targeting, uh, setting it up so that it would mix up a buffer and then set the DMA so that it uh, sent all the data to the same two registers. And mm. then you would sit there in a loop with the, the, the processor watching to see when the uh, transfer was ended and then you'd do the next buffer. And then from there, I worked on making it to where uh, instead of sitting there watching it with the CPU in a loop, you would just simply enable interrupts and watch for the interrupt handler would then take over and mix the next buffers up and restart your uh, DMA. Hmm. So I did a number of demos where I moved from just plain DMA for the audio to interrupt-driven DMA. So at that time, the secondary processor is now free to do other things while it's not mixing the audio. Hmm. That's pretty cool. That So that must have been a pretty significant performance difference, right? Uh, yeah, because you're not wasting all this time just busy looping, waiting on the DMA to finish. You can just go do something else, do some hmm. computations, maybe some 3D rotations for the rest of the game, whatever it's doing. And... Um, in the meantime, your audio runs in the background. When the DMA hits the end, it generates an interrupt over to the uh, processor, and the processor runs the interrupt code. And the interrupt code will mix up your next buffer and restart your next DMA, and then you can go back to whatever you were doing. Hmm, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was at the time. I just thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, so, I mean, it's still cool today. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know this is, we're kind of jumping around here a little bit, but when you had mentioned you'd done some stuff on other platforms, did you release that under Chili Willy or under your name or under a different platform, you know, a different moniker? It It's kind of mixed. I did a lot of, the, almost all the PSP stuff was all under um, Chili Willy. 
because at the time I wasn't sure what was going to going on there. Uh, right. Sony turned out to be not too interested as long as you weren't um, actually um, uh, putting out custom firmwares yourself, but just simply working with custom firmwares, they didn't really care too much. So at hmm. that point, then when I moved over to working on other platforms, some of it would be under Chili Willy and some of it would be under Joe Fenton. And I wasn't too concerned at that point about people knowing that Chili Willy was Joe. So eventually I just switched to the point where whatever I was registered at the forum as, that was the name that I was using. So That's on funny. some reg on some forums I'd be under, you know, JL Fenton and on others I'd be registered as Chili Willy. So That's funny. So I think um, just a super, super short background of mine. I played all this stuff. Uh, I'm like 41 now, I think. <laughs> I played all this stuff when it was coming through, you know, NES, Genesis, Super Nintendo. Uh, and then, you know, life hits and, you know, you discover other things. But I always kind of paid attention to it. And then I got a job working from home in 2011, I think, or 2010, maybe. Uh, and that's when I had all of this extra time because I had to be in front of the computer but there was a lot of stuff I had to do that was like click and wait, you know, having waiting for stuff to render, waiting for, you know, I, I did a lot of stuff with imaging for uh, software. So, you know, I'd always have multiple computers set up. So I started retro RGB and kind of jumped back into this, jump back into it first, then, then started retro <laughs> RGB. And that's immediately when I first started seeing your name pop up was when I started doing all of this. Uh, and in fact, I spoke to Renee from DB electronics um, and, you know, he basically, I was like, yeah, did you ever hear this Chili Willy guy? And he looked at me like, you know, he looked at me like I said, oh, did you ever hear of the president of the United States? He's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the guy's a legend. What are you talking? So, yeah, your name's been floating around forever. And I think, um, so that's why I've been following your work since about that time. And I think that, you know, that drop off, because I didn't have an Atari computer, so I wouldn't have stumbled across the pitfall hack, which I would have loved if I if I had it. <laughs> um, and, and that was pretty much it. So that's, you know, the gap where where I must have missed any of the JL Fenton work, but picked you, you know, picked up with you as Chili Willy in the in the Genesis scene from the Sega 16 forums all the way on and uh, and through a couple of indirect correspondences. So. I mean, that that's, uh, yeah, your name's definitely been floating around. And I think it was always because of the knowledge you had about this stuff. And there was always like, for people that didn't know the other side of you, there was always, you know, murmurings of where did this person come from? There was some rumor that you were a Chinese hacker. I think that was because <laughs> the guy from the IC2000, the guy who was selling the original Genesis ROM carts was in China. Oh, yeah. So I think that was, that was something. Toto and, yeah. I think that's no, it was the I. It may have been Tototech, oh, but Neo Flash. That's what it was. I was Neo on Flash. his forum as a moderator because um, uh. he came out with a flash cart for the uh, the Genesis called the Neo Myth, the yeah. Mega Drive, and I picked up one because I I thought it would be much easier for doing homebrew to just load it off of an SD card. And it advertised that it had an SD card interface on the flash card. If you bought the proper uh, add-on module for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, what it was is the Myth series was basically an adapter between their Neo Flash Game Boy Advance carts to whatever the console was. In this case, the Neo Myth was um, 
an adapter from the Neo Flash GBA cart to the mm-hmm. Genesis. So, um, so it was like this blue cart that had a Game Boy Advance slot in it, but you yes. couldn't play Game Boy Advance games. And I believe uh, it came with a memory module that, that held a handful of games because it was enough space to put like the entire SMS library or, yeah. or not the entire library, but at the very least, like, because uh, I had that cart, um, you could put that, the whole 3D and FM games on it. And they also offered loopback so you could add FM sound because it had a YM chip in it. And the Genesis That's, one offered that as well. Yeah, the uh, Master System had the YM, what was it, the 2053 or something yes, like that? Yes, 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 you're right. The the FM sound chip for the Master System. And right, I believe the they pack. offered a Genesis version like that too with uh, FM sound chip built in. Mm, but no, it's the newer Mega EverDrives where they no 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 no. There was FM definitely something back then because I had bought hmm. all of them, and the person that sold them was kind of a dick. And the Genesis <laughs> one that showed up didn't work right. And I mean, I've always been a nerd, right? So I didn't just email and say, "Hey, this doesn't work." I said, "Hey, uh, here's all of my test data. Here's the scenarios in which it fails. Here's how I tried to make it." And he basically came back with did you reboot your computer? I was like, please reread the email. I did everything. And then his response was email chili willy. And I'm like, well, you have that's the guy that made the, all the software. That's not, that's not your tech. Is it? That's not any like, and it finally, after months and months, you had helped out a little bit and you basically were like, sounds like you already did all the work. Sounds like it's dead. Well, Hey, you tell your friend that. So eventually (laughs) it was just like, uh, I'm not going to refund your money, but I'll send you another one. I was like, I don't ever want to deal with you again. Send me my money back. I'll pay for the shipping of the cart, you know, and I'll sell the, I I think I gave the master system cart to Renee from DB electronics to see if he could mess with it at all. And and, um, not for ROM cart purposes, but just, just to see what he thought of it and everything. But I was so turned off by all of that, that whole interaction. I was so shocked that somebody who had sold something like that would have just dumped their tech support off on you like that. Unless, unless that was a preconceived thing. Did, did, was this a deal where you were offering to do that? Well, no, you had to remember one thing about these people is that, um, the IC 2005 Neo flash company, it was just two guys. It was one guy doing all the hardware who had no knowledge of anything else other than just programming the, the Game Boy Advance. And um, the other guy who actually ran Neo Flash, he was kind of the business end. And he had just enough tech savvy to do some, some really half-ass uh, menus for the hardware for other consoles. So, for example, when I got my uh, NeoMyth for the Mega Drive, it came up with this really sketchy uh, two-color menu that just, you know, could barely launch something off of the the carts. And I Mm -hmm. knew that he was not going to be able to do the uh, interface for SD cards. So I'm like... um, I rewrote his menu first originally, just based on what I could figure out from his menu to give the nice Neomyth menu that most people are familiar with, where you get the whole full screen and the different colors and you can select stuff with a browser. 
Yeah, um, that's right. Because when you downloaded the, so just, you know, we, we should all just give a thumbs up to Crix right now, because for people that might not have experienced this, the early 2010 to 2015 era before the uh, EverDrives came out, if you wanted to put a ROM set on a micro SD, just to reiterate, you had to find this cart. You had to first get, you know, load it up to make sure it's working. Then you had to find this Game Boy Advance looking cartridge, which was really only the SD micro SD adapter for it that allowed you to put a memory card in. Then you had to find because I don't think they even linked on the page. I think they had to find your post on their forum that had your version of the software because their version was like, I mean, sorry to be an asshole, but their version was basically unusable. And then you found yours figured out how to load it all up. And once you got it all together, then you had a working version of what we all know as a ROM (laughs) card. But even your software would even work with the memory modules. So that was fine. But then you would have to plug those into a PC with a USB cable and load your ROMs that way, which is just, I I can't stand doing that. In most cases, some some more modern stuff actually does it really, really nice. Yeah, it was a a little USB adapter for the GBA carts that would then write the flash on those carts. And that was right. a whole nother thing altogether. But I, uh, after I wrote, rewrote the menu and showed them my new menu and put it up so that people could use it, uh, I told them, you know, if you just give me a little bit of information on the cart about the um, SD port, I could write SD support for it. <laughs> and he's like, Okay, so he sent me this document that's like half Chinese that's um, really obscure about uh, using the uh, the SD port. And I worked in the SD card support into the uh, menu and added some more bells and whistles to the menu as I went along. You know, there's a group of people, a group of our fellow nerds listening to this going, oh, that's a neat story. But there's a chunk of us that owned that cart that know what it was like before that software. So thank you so much. Because that that just, because, you know, this is before Cricks, right? We are all spoiled on that. You buy an EverDrive, you throw your ROMs on it, you download the BIOS that's right there on Cricks.com. You don't have to go hunting around for anything and you're done. That's it. You know, if you could, if you could figure out how to follow very basic instructions and copy a file from your computer to an SD card, then you're done. That's, that is the extent of your technical knowledge. <laughs> And that is yeah. not how it was back then. So thank you for taking the time to save all of us from that. Hopefully they at <laughs> least sent you a couple of free ROM carts or something. Uh, he sent me another uh, updated version of the Neo Myth when he got to that point. But at that point, he's like, uh, do you have like a uh, Nintendo 64? Because we're coming out with this Nintendo 64 cart. And the menu is just like the original one on the Mega Drive. Uh, This little blue and white uh, uh, DOS-like menu that uh, would let you select a cart and everything. I'm like, sure, send me that on. I'll whip you up a nice one, a nice menu. Uh, And so I did. At that point, then, I had someone else who had been helping uh, with the Mega Drive menu, adding various little things to it. Uh, we put up a, uh, at that time, Google code. We had a Google code page where we'd post um, the, the code to. So you could actually get all this stuff. In fact, the the Google code archives still have all that code for the uh, uh, different uh, menus that we worked on. But uh, uh, Conley, Conley on, 
Uh, I don't remember exactly what the full name was there, but that was his handle on the, uh, the forum. And, um, I wrangled a cart for the Nintendo 64 for him as well. And, uh, uh, we worked on that menu together as well. And then they, we got a cart for the uh, Super Nintendo. And we added another person to the group working on that one. It was uh, Mick. And um, he had done things like the six-pack uh, tool for the mm. Super Nintendo. And he had his own little tool chain that he was working on for that. And he did a lot of the work for the uh, Super Nintendo version. Wow. Well, that was that so. was really nice of all of you to contribute like that because those, I mean, when you when you hear us talk about like one caller on another for text, I mean, technically that's the Crix menus, but they're the Crix menus are beautifully basic, right? Black background, white text. You know what's going on. It's easy to yeah. read. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not what these were at all. This is this is a color on top of another color. You had to kind of squint most of the time. So so thank you. It's um you know it's interesting that their software development was basically asking people to do it for free. So I feel less bad about being a little harsh about them, <laughs> even less bad. But uh, well, yeah, like I, I said, mean, you changed the game with that. It's just a couple of guys running a store, probably out of their basement. <laughs> Uh, or garage or something that uh, one guy was mainly the hardware guy and the other guy was um, somewhat software, but more into the business end of things. And yeah. so they, they could use the help they uh, to, to work on the other platforms. They had the GBA down pretty nice, but um, they then worked that into the, uh, the uh, DS, the NDS Nintendo DS, the dual screen. Mm. Uh, Are they, uh, do they even sell stuff? Because I, uh, you know, once there was more alternatives, I I ended up just taking those links off the site because I would get, when I still published my email address, I would get constant emails like, hey, I bought one of these things. How in the (laughs) hell do you use it? I'm just like, just, I I don't know. Here's the guides. I think they're still around, but I haven't done too much on their end of things in quite a while. I still use the carts, but I'm more into, for example, like I've got a Mega Everdrive. I need to get their pro version here sometime. And Mm. um, I've got the uh, Everdrive 64 for the Nintendo 64. I like using that. Um, Have you, uh, have you worked on, on those much? I mean, is it, once you get into the point where you're ROM hacking and you're creating your software for it, does the ROM cart that you're using matter past a certain point? Once it's, once you could drop a ROM on an SD card, are are there a difference in usability? And of course, compatibility aside, right? You know, the super FX chip, you can't run on one type of uh, EverDrive. So, you know, stuff like that aside. Well, if it's, if you're all you're doing is taking advantage of standard features, for example, like uh, on the uh, uh, Genesis, for example, there was the standard mapper, which allowed you to have more than four megabytes of cartridge, or the standard save RAM, so that you could uh, save and load uh, progress in your game. As long as you set to the standards, then the type of cart doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, programming to match the standard. But when you start talking about being able to load things off an SD card, for example, then you've got to know the specifics of the cart that you're using. 
So, for example, I made a uh, video player. Well, it started out as just an audio player for the Nintendo 64. It played um, MP3 and AAC and AUG and uh, uh, MIDI files. I called it the Simple Media Player. It was something I did for a uh, programming contest on the Nintendo 64. So it needed to be able to load all these things off of SD card. So I had to make it specific for the flash cart that I was using for that. And then from there, I added in the ability to play uh, ROQ video files. That was the video format used in Quake 3, was it, I think? But um, that actually works pretty good on the uh, Nintendo 64, so I've been... uh, sort of working on and off on doing that on the 32X as well. And you might see that, um, have seen that Vic recently, uh, earlier in the year did a, some, uh, ROQ video playing on the 32X for a contest on Sega extreme web uh, yeah. forum. Yeah, I saw that. And, um, uh, Matt, who goes by Mateus Baez, was doing a bunch of very cool FMV oh, yeah, that uh, was color really hacking cool. stuff. Yeah, that was pretty neat as well. So, uh, you know, I've been, I mean, basically since before I even came up with the name Retro RGB, I've been following the scene pretty closely. And, uh, you know, I, I follow the N64 stuff, but I, I think I, my interest has always been in, in you know, the Sega, uh, you know, Genesis, Sega CD, 32X, but also things that like, that are weird and different, right? When you have somebody approaching 32X CD games or something with a completely different way of doing it, you have my attention because it's so out of left field and it's just, you know, there's so many other platforms out there uh, that these more obscure ones tend to get overlooked. So when I see people developing for them, I'm just, you know, first of all, thank you. Second of all, why? (laughs) And then third of all, what can we do with it? What's the features? And, you know, I'm always interested in stuff like that. So that that was uh, a, kind of a cool one. Well, about the time um, I decided to move on from the Nintendo 64, so I didn't get burnt out on that. I moved back over to the Genesis Sega CD. And that's Mm -hmm. when I started doing some demos, mostly on the Sega CD there. I put out a uh, mod player, well, at first mm-hmm. I put out just basically some tools that allowed you to boot a particular app off the CD-ROM. There were some mm-hmm. other people that had done similar things. So I uh, went ahead and showed how to do that to then do mod playing, which was also kind of a tutorial on how to use the PCM chip on the Sega CD so that you could do playing mods. Mm-hmm. So um, then... I um, got into, um, uh, basically, there was this uh, big flurry over using the DMA on the Mega Drive for basically painting a display through the background color using DMA. Uh, I called it direct color DMA, but uh, uh, some people called it uh, blast video or that's an awesome name (laughs) the whole point was that basically you'd set up the the dma and the vdp in the mega drive the genesis so that it would pull memory from it pull the data 
from either ROM or RAM if it was available. For example, if you had the Sega CD and you had the Word RAM mapped over to the Genesis side, you could pull the video data from that memory. And what it would do is it would DMA a frame, but it was always sending the data to the background color. So you're basically just painting the entire screen by constantly changing the background color. And uh, that allowed you to do a typical kind of frame buffer like you'd have on a PC where it was 9-bit direct RGB pixels. And so I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool mode. What can I do with that on the Sega CD side in particular? On the, on the, the Genesis side, it's kind of cool, but you can't do a whole lot with it because you don't have enough memory, enough RAM on the Genesis to... A full frame was about 120 kilobytes, and you only got 64 kilobytes of RAM. So it was mainly just doing static pictures in ROM, and I put out a couple of uh, picture image viewers using that mode as a demo for the Genesis. But then on the Sega CD, they have what they call uh, Word RAM, and what it is is the ASIC can draw into that RAM, and then you can flip it between the Sega CD side or the Genesis side. And then at that point, the Genesis can load that data into video RAM for displaying it. And that's how you do things like the, like the Batman. Uh, a lot of those uh, sprites are all scaled and rotated using the ASIC on the CD. And then it's just switched over to the Genesis side and then DMA directly into the uh, VRAM for the Genesis. But, hmm. um, because you've got um, this RAM that can be done on one side or the other, it's like a frame buffer for your video when you're in this particular DMA mode. So I'd have the Sega CD processor like running that Wolf 3D demo, drawing the, uh, the raycasting level into Word RAM, and then you'd just flip the buffers and on the Amiga... The, sorry, Genesis side, it would just simply be DMAing that memory straight to the screen, drawing your display. And I had the mod player as part of that, so you had music while you were playing your game. Uh, Matt just recently did a video. I don't know if it's out yet or not, but he's showing me a version of it where he um, took that demo and instead of wolf graphics, he's done his own graphics to uh, make it look more like an actual game. Mm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. So all of these tools you um, have, you published the work or I guess either guides or the tools that you use to do all this stuff as you go. You'll find um, a lot of it on Sega 16 and some of it on Sprite's Mind. Sprite's Mind is a good uh, forum to go to if you're a developer because there's all sorts of tools and all sorts of developers hang out there. And you can almost always reach someone who knows what you're trying to do. So if you have a question, you need some help, uh, the people there can help out. So although I sometimes might leave a forum and not go by for some cases, maybe years. I'm always at Sprite's mind. Ah, okay. But, cause I mean, that's kind of the case is you, uh, 
yeah, and I don't mean this, I don't mean any disrespect by this at all, but you know, we did see you drop off certain forums for a while and then come back and then disappear for a while. So we just, you know, it, uh, I just, you know, for me personally, like I was on Sega 16 all the time. And then every time I went there, it just redirected to an ad. So I assumed the website had crashed and somebody said, uh, I don't know what the problem was that was. Eventually it got fixed, but I, I did drop off there for a while, <laughs> but not intentionally. I just assumed something was wrong with the site. So you never know. But I've seen you up on um, uh, SMS Power as well, too, I believe, right? Yeah, I did some things for when we had the cartridge come out. I did a few uh, things. Uh, I patched, for example, the uh, SMS support for one of the dev kits because it worked perfectly on emulator but didn't work on real hardware. So I was trying to do some demos using their uh, dev kit and it wasn't working through the cart. So I figured out what they were doing wrong and made some changes, some fixes to their dev kit so that it not only worked on emulators, but it actually worked on real hardware as well. So I posted Hmm. that all over at SMS power. That's probably the best site for doing the old uh, master system stuff <laughs> yeah yeah it's still a lot of really good people posting there too I, I spoke with maxim a while back about that and uh you know i've kept in touch with a lot of the people i've met on there since i mean in, forever <laughs> so yeah that's uh wow that's pretty cool because so, i the reason i asked that is because i i definitely remember seeing the wolfenstein where you could play the, the soundtrack from cd on a sega cd while you're playing the game but after that i saw a bunch of other people doing something similar for their games and adding that in. And I always, uh, and I assumed that that must've meant that you had published how to do that somewhere and people were using your work as guides, but I didn't ever really know for sure. Cause I'm, I'm not a programmer. I could understand just enough to sound like an idiot when I'm talking to other programmers, but that's about it. <laughs> the very first of that, um, I forget exactly. I think it was on Sonic Retro where I posted the info on doing the Mode 1 on the CD. What was happening is someone wanted to put CD audio support on one of the Sonic games. Hmm. And he didn't really have any idea how to do that. So I had been walking him through it in the background. And he released this um, first version of, I think it was Sonic 2 with CD support for music if you had a CD available, but had severe problems. It wasn't really working for most people. So Mm. I went in and um, basically I fixed all the problems that were in it. And I posted uh, a a new binary and. Okay. So uh, another, another Wi-Fi dropout, but we'll, um, I I guess we'll start wrapping it up a little bit, but I want to make sure I I finish this because, you know, I want to kind of, credit your work where it's due here so you said you did publish code uh because you would help the person with the sonic hack and that is uh, you did get that information out there so it's not like somebody um nobody reverse engineered what you did and stole your code or anything like that right no we had been working on it in the background he kept emailing me and i'd send him uh more instructions on how to deal with the thing mm-hmm. but when he finally released his hack on i think it was sonic retro um, it had problems and people were complaining. He's like, well, I'll eventually get around to fixing it. Don't worry. And it took a month and a two months and people are like, when's the fix? When's the fix? So I just heard, I'll go in and fix it. So I went in and fixed it. 
made the code all nice and clean and nice and published the how-to along with the fix and said, there you go. And uh, well, uh, thank you for that. Uh, he got a little upset, though. So, I mean, I don't know. It'd be different. How you know how those things how those things unfold is almost as important as as what actually happened. It would be different if you were out like, you know, this person's a fraud. I'll do it. Screw everybody. Then yeah, I'd be annoyed too. But if you're just like, hey, it's been months. They haven't gotten around to it. Here's the code. Like, who's going to be mad at that? So, you know. Yeah, I oh mean, well. I gave him full credit for the work he did. And just, you know, he's busy doing other things. So in the meantime, I'll just go ahead and help out a little here. And if Well, it, I mean, that obviously was important. And it led yeah. to quite a few things. And even that game, uh, Pure Solar, um, used that, that same. Solo Polo. <laughs> polo Solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've never actually played the game. I just I know the the lore, and then, um, yeah, I met I met some of the people that had kind of worked on it over the years. Not, but the their one infamous leader just turned me off so much. I just I, I haven't played any of their games. I just can't. <laughs> the the paprium in in particular that really turned off a lot of people to watermelon. Yeah, but and you know what you see. You know, like the Stika video series is very fair on the whole thing, although I couldn't bring myself to watch the interview. But what went on behind the scenes, too, <laughs> is pretty gross as well. Uh, and it's just I think I think everybody should at least understand what they're dealing with with that with that interesting human. But, yeah, it's uh, that was, in fact, a, a, like I was talking to somebody who was awesome. I was going to do some work with them. I, I think I did do a little bit of work and. I got like five minutes into a, you know, a private call like this, not a public chat, not, not a podcast or anything, just a chat. I was like, look, you seem cool, but I got to ask, what the hell was up? <laughs> like, <laughs> did you have anything to do with that? What was there? Like, ah, oh, no. <laughs> like, so it's, you know, hearing behind the scenes is, uh, is, is equally as odd as you would expect with that stuff. But yeah, I got, yeah, I got one of the first batches of the uh, uh, Pure Solar. Uh, hmm. With the CD-ROM, that was that hmm. was actually a pretty cool game. But I like backing games for the Genesis. I've bought quite a few of Same. the games that have been coming out. I um, what I did because I lived in Manhattan for a while, which means I had I lived in a closet basically. So whenever any of these developers would offer ROM purchases, I would Tensor, always do that. Get it now. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> so I bought all the ROMs. I have a couple of the um, the complete in box, you know, homebrew stuff, but not many. For most of the time, I, I just purchased the ROM because I always want to support the developers. And as much as I would love to have a massive wall of games like a lot of my friends do, I opted for a massive wall of CRTs instead. So. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I always thought that my best uh, work was done in helping people. So that's why I've focused mainly on tool chains and snippets of code, small dev kits, and demos on how to do things. And then I make myself available on different forums like Sprite's Mind to answer questions or people contact me for, via email. I eventually get back to them. <laughs> Uh, depends on yeah, but you're not people's have. personal support service. So no. you know, I've made jokes over the years about how you're hard to get a hold of. But why, like, 
you don't owe anybody anything. So it's, you know, they were only jokes. I was never mad at you or anything. Cause yeah. <laughs> I, it's just one of those things where it's like, you have a life, you have things to do. If you get around to responding, cool, you don't owe anybody anything. And in fact, we all owe you because anybody that's used homebrew that used the tools and the code that you published, you know, we're indebted to you here. So that's why I try not to bother devs too much at least some of my friends are rolling their eyes when i say that because i bother them <laughs> daily but most of the time i try not to be a bother yeah i also like helping out other people who are doing their own tools for example i contributed a lot of the controller code that's in uh, uh sgdk mainly hmm. because i had them so and i had the expertise so someone's got to do the code originally it just had like um joystick support and you plain. added mouse support for that too. I right? added mouse support. Then I added um, all the different um, light guns. Light guns, yeah. So, so does and, that mean that theoretically somebody could use that code if they wanted to add menacer support to lethal weapon or or oh, or, yeah. mm-hmm. um, or what is it the justifier support to terminator or something? People could do that now on original hardware if they wanted, obviously through a rom car or something. But. Yes. That is so incredible. that's all, that's all up there. It's it's all documented, everything part of SGDK. And if they have questions, and sometimes people do, then I uh, am available to answer those. Let you know how those things work. And that's incredible. There are so many of those games from back in the day that were controller only that I just never understood why the uh, why the companies didn't put in other support. Like Tomcat Alley, like, you know, you can't even fly the plane, so why not at least make it a light gun game or at least allow the mouse to be used? And it's just there were so many of those games that the controller input support was very disappointing. So oh, that was another thing I just worked on a, a little bit back is um, mouse support on the uh, Sega CD Doom game. Um, mm, that's right, it, yeah. It had some initial mouse support, but it had problems. And looking at the code, it was easy to see why. Basically, they were overriding some functions because the code was too big. So I miniaturized the code so that it didn't overwrite things and then fixed some of the bugs they had, like when the mouse overflows, for example. And they had a slight creep problem when moving the mouse negative directions. So I was back and forth with the person who was making the patches for Dune so that we could work it out so that it worked with uh, both mice, the Japanese mouse as well as the uh, European and American Mega Mouse. That's right, because they were slightly different code for them, right? Uh, It turns out that the code, if you do it properly, works properly on both. But there is a difference in the hardware. You don't have the start button on the um, uh, the Japanese map. You just have the three buttons. There's hmm. the two main buttons on top, and then the trackball, when you push it in, gives you your other button. So huh. on the Mega Mouse, they gave you... Uh, they got rid of the trackball button... And uh, they gave you three mice buttons and then a fourth button on the side that was the start button. Oh, the reason they had that uh, button under the trackball on the Japanese one is it was designed to where you could use it as a uh, trackball. You'd hold the mouse in your hand backwards so that the ball was facing you, and you could run the mouse, the, the ball, back and forth 
and then push it as a trigger. Oh, so for something like Marble Madness, yes, I exactly. That was kind of fun. Did that game actually have the code for that though? Uh, I believe it does. The Japanese version. There are certain versions that do, and That's other right. versions that don't. If I remember correctly. That's and right. That I remember was... using the um, Master System tra- trackball on the U.S. Genesis version, and you had to use it in controller mode. It sort of worked, but not not really at all. So <laughs> I would have to have it in uh, in trackball mode with the Japanese version to test if that even works with the code, which it, it might not. So probably won't. But <laughs> I'm still going to try it if I remember it one of these days, because why not, right? So up until um, just here recently with uh, Vic, I've more concentrated on just maintaining these tools and doing the odd demo here and there and answering questions for people. But then I'd always wanted to do an update of Doom for the 32X. And then um, someone pointed me to Vic or sent my name to Vic saying, um, oh, get in touch with him. He's real big on this 32X stuff. And he had the skeleton for 32X Doom worked out on my older... uh, dev kit for the 32x so i was like oh that's really cool so let's update this and fix all the problems and add all these features and he's done a wonderful job on the multiprocessor support that's all his work there that's very cool yeah i was blown away with the first release but every release since has added some really cool stuff to it (laughs) yeah we've uh Still got more stuff we're adding in all the time. Oh, that's so. exciting. That's very cool. So when you're developing on this stuff, what are you using to test? Are you using like an EverDrive in that original Genesis 2 and Sega CD2 that you bought when you were uh, when you were young, or is it? I do some testing with emulator, uh, Fusion for Windows, but I run it in Wine on Linux, 3.64. Because the old version, the the latest Linux version was three point six three, and he never did a three point six four version for Linux. But three point six four is where he fixed the problems with the thirty two X for things like DMA audio. Mm. But I also use Pico Drive for thirty two X emulation on Linux as well, because that's got better support for larger ROMs. Okay. It's not quite as user-friendly as the uh, Fusion, but it's newer, and it's it's got more bells and whistles to it now. So, But I also use um, both the Neo Flash still, the Neo Myth, and the uh, Mega EverDrive on my old Sega Genesis Model 2 with the Model 2 CD and my Launch 32X. But One of the things I did do later is, um, while floating around on eBay, I found a CDX, a Sega CDX. Yes, I love those. I picked that up uh, nice and cheap, and at at another point in time, I got a 32X for like 20 bucks shipped. (laughs) You know the prices now on those, so I couldn't pass that up. So I put that 32X on the CDX, 
And that was how I was able to do my debugging for the networking support we just added with the hmm. zero tolerance cables. I just happened to have a zero tolerance cable. So I ran Did you from... buy that when it came out or did you make one recently? No, actually. Uh... All right. All right. We're getting killed here. I guess uh, there's a storm in both of our areas. So maybe it's me that's doing this too. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Well, I can check the Wi-Fi level on my PC over here and off my corner. And when this happens, there are no bars. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Uh, well, I guess we should kind of wrap it up then. Cause if it's a storm there, this is going to just keep happening. But yeah. um, so what is in the works for you next? You had mentioned uh, working on tools, um, working a little bit more with Vic on doom. Um, is there anything else you have in the works? Um some things I want to do, update my Wolf 32X. I learned so much working with Vic on Doom. I can apply a lot of that over to, to Wolf to help make it better because it's mm. showing its age. That's for sure. So I want to do an update to Wolf 32X. And then also another thing perhaps is work on, for example, the Saturn version of uh, Doom 32X Resurrection. Because be uh, cool. a lot of people have complained about how bad the Saturn version is. And in fact, now a lot of them are telling us that uh, Doom 32X Resurrection is working much better at full resolution than the Saturn does. Yeah. So, it's kind of funny to see that. Uh, the, do you have a mister? Have you used that platform at all? No, actually, I don't. So I've, I've thought about getting one, but current prices on the hardware right now are through the roof because of all the supply chain problems. So I'm going to yeah. hold off a little bit and then probably get one. There's there's still places to get them reasonably. I'll talk to you afterwards about it, but you just have to have a little bit of patience. Shoot me an email. Get, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure you get taken care of because I'm a big fan of that platform. And that's that's a really cool place to see hardware devs and software devs come together because oh, yeah. obviously you need hardware devs to get the cores into VHDL or Verilog. I keep I always get those confused. Sorry, <laughs> Mr. Folk. Uh, but then, of course, you know, now that you have this platform that makes a lot of this stuff infinitely more accessible to people, the software devs have been showing up a lot, too. So it, it'd be very cool to see uh, great minds collide over there. It would be really cool to see someone do something like the uh, Pluto for, yes. you know, the, 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 the 32X Genesis all in one using a uh, like the Mister as the internals. yeah the, the neptune i think you mean right neptune yeah i think it was the i think it was the neptune but Maybe it was um, the neptune not the, no yeah you're right it's neptune not the pluto pluto was something else yeah, yeah right. i i would love to see that as well um but i you know i i also just think putting a lot of this stuff together like um 32x support was done or was added by one developer and then, of course, a lot of the team members stepped up and kind of helped out after that core was released. But yeah. it's just one of those things where with all that you all have learned on the software side of this over the years, I'm wondering if there's any refinements that could be made. If 32X CD support could be added, not that there's a single 32X CD <laughs> game that I would ever really want to play all the time. But now that opens up the possibility of what about all the crazy work that you all have done? Well, see, that's the thing. One of the reasons why I like doing open source is that people can go and look at how you're using the hardware, and that might help them 
from that point of view, looking at how code is using the hardware to, to figure out how the hardware works under normal usage cases. Because yeah, there's a I difference between agree. what a, a hardware manual translated from Japanese says and what you sometimes actually have to do to get something working on real hardware. Yeah, absolutely. So that's pretty cool. I'll uh, I'll make sure to get that get some info over to you af afterwards for that stuff. But cool. I'm always excited to see those enhancements. And you know, of course, I keep up with Vic, and uh, and I, I try to keep up with all of uh, what's going on in the the development scene for as much as I can. Luckily, I have a, a bunch of amazing contributors to Retro RGB that help out with that because there's a lot of genres that I just. Uh, I just haven't been following as long as they have, so they really nail it. But uh, we'll, we'll obviously continue to uh, to promote your work and to share all of the stuff that you've done with everybody because, you know, it's, you know, I said it at the very opening, you're a legend. But anybody that's done development, 32X, Genesis, has stumbled across your code at some point. So we all very much appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, well, I will uh, I'll leave links to some of the your favorite work below. Um, and hopefully at some other point, uh, maybe when the next cool thing's released, we can have a follow-up chat together and just kind of talk about whatever new awesome thing that sure. you've, uh, you've released for people. <laughs> Get All a right, few well, more thank... stories in as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We'll do it on a day that it's not raining, so uh, yeah. we will have less interruptions. But thank you very much for everything, Joe, and uh, uh, we will hopefully talk again soon. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.